This is an AMI podcast. Yeah, it's still winter. It's still cold. It's still snowing and there's still ice. You know, climate change hasn't stopped everything yet, but it has been an unusually warm winter. And that's got me thinking about sailing. It's got me thinking about the Great Lakes, going out, exploring Lake Superior. And it's got me thinking about what's causing these warm winters. So today on Outdoors with Lawrence Gunther, it's about greenhouse gases, mitigating climate change, wind power, sailing, and getting out on Lake Superior. I'll talk to you back at the ice shack. Come on, Lewis, let's go get warm. Getting schooled with Miss Lily. Lily, so what kind of reflections, advice, uh, lessons do you have for us today? Okay, well, I've been uh, wondering, why is it that when we talk about tackling climate change, the focus almost always seems to be on clean energy solutions? Things like renewable energy, such as wind or solar power. Yeah, that wind and solar power, replacing gas, fossil fuels with uh, renewable energy. Yeah, what's wrong with that? But you know what? We also do something here. We have our solar blanket on the pool. We have our heating mats up on the roof to heat the pool. And no matter what he tells you, it doesn't work. <laughs> it gets that pool's warm. Cold. That pool's cold. <laughs> Always. <laughs> we could use more solar blankets and yes. more heaters. It, but it, it, it feels like swimming in the freaking glacier waters. <laughs> All right. Move on. Okay. Well, lots of innovative ideas are already being developed to reduce our dependence on fossil fuels. Like we know about alternative ways to produce energy needed to create electricity and heat or to power transportation and industrial process. In fact, these four energy intensive processes account for about three quarters of greenhouse gas emissions. But our global food production and distribution is also a big contributor to greenhouse gas emissions. Really? Yeah, no, it accounts for the remaining quarter of the GHGs. Food. The food. way we make food. Yeah, that are, that are contributing to climate change. It's, wow. It's a problem for which we have to yet adopt alternative solution. Really? Do you have something in mind? Sure. For example, farming animals and the commercial fishing industry account for 31% of that quarter. So 31% comes from farming animals and chasing fish around the ocean. 31% of that one quarter. Well, yeah, this includes like animals raised for meat, dairy, and eggs and growing oh. and catching seafood. So. Okay. Crop production accounts for another 27% of that quarter. Soya beans, corn, wheat. Ooh, okay, 21% of this includes crops for human consumptions like grain and beans, and 6% of crops used for animal feed. Wow, okay, back to animals again. Mm-hmm. Animals take a lot to feed to feed us. Yeah. The way we use land like plowing or the conversion of forests and grasslands into croplands or pastures also account for another 24% of that quarter of GHGs okay. that are causing climate change. Tractors and, and just tearing out, you know, those tearing carbon sinks. Yeah, the carbon sinks and the things that make oxygen and store carbon. Yeah, the things that make our planet clean. Yeah. The hmm. processing involved with turning farm products into food accounts for 18% of that quarter of greenhouse gas emissions. The preparing, the packaging, mm -hmm. canning, all that stuff. Emissions related to transporting food to grocery stores and restaurants account for about another 6%. The trucks, eh? Yeah. Unfortunately, you can't not include cow burps and farts, a major <laughs> source of methane. It's ten times worse. Methane gas. In terms of contributing to climate change. Ten times worse. Yeah. Methane gas. Yeah. And that's that's what cows, you know, when they're, when they're chewing their cud and they're burping and they're passing wind. They're farting. Farting. 
<laughs> okay. I, I, I wasn't going to laugh, but I, I can't help it. <laughs> You're a child. Well, here are like four things we can do to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. All right. It all comes down for our food consumption choices. Right. So number one is to eat less meat and more meat alternatives like plants or bugs bugs uh, you ate bugs i, I have you, never eaten a bug you ate those cookies i brought home they had grasshopper powder in them i was not aware no you weren't and they were so not I mean, they weren't even that bad they were good sure they were good um number two is to reduce food waste like buying more food kits and less bulk so then you don't actually have to throw away any food if it doesn't end up being eaten no waste, no seconds either, right? Mm -hmm. So there's, there's no more uh, overeating. No more, no more going back for seconds. Nope. Not Sorry, Dad. Kids. I no. know that's your favorite. <laughs> well, I can't help myself. Yeah, well, Mom's a good cook. She's so. a good cook. Um, and three, support farmers to adopt more efficient ways to grow food, such as the use of alternative or clean energy. I like that idea. I like that too. Yeah, that's... ethanol instead of gasoline or diesel. That's and... solving the problem at its source. Yeah. Keeping it in the bud. Yeah. Cool. Um, number four is eat more local food when in season to reduce transportation costs, which I guess would mean no more fresh strawberries in January and February brought in from places like Brazil. You know, that's that would be a sacrifice we'd all have to make. You know, we eat seasonally. And if you want to have it in the winter, you can it. You, you jar it, put it in jars, yeah, you just store it. Yeah, you can still have like jam. Yeah. Yeah. And that's kind of what the human race is meant to eat, you know? Like, I don't think when the human race was designed, it was like, okay, so in the cold winters here, they'll bring in food from over there, you know? It makes sense if we eat seasonally. It makes people money, but it's sure contributing to greenhouse gases. There's no doubt about it. That's something we could make a conscious effort not to ship our food around so much. But I tell you, Lily, eating bugs, you know, I'm not convinced, right? Like, I don't mind snails, you know, escargot. And lobsters, <laughs> lobsters, you know, nice big spiders. They're oh. not... <laughs> Arachnids. No. <laughs> yeah. They're crustaceans. Oh, oh, they look like spiders. Okay, but that's not what they mean. All right. Um, they mean things like grasshopper chocolate chip cookies. Yeah, yeah. yeah we, we watched that documentary in Toronto. That was. I remember that. It's called, <laughs> the first one was called Cubo's Crickets. Yeah. The second one was called Bugs. Bugs. And, and I've never been more scarred in my entire life. Those people went around the world eating bugs. I know. That was gross. I know. It was almost like it was kind of counterproductive because they were going on planes to like countries all over the world to taste one single termite queen by destroying the entire nest. It was just gross. It did not it... advance the cause of eating bugs instead of meat. That's for sure. No, it didn't. No, no. You're right. Sorry, guys, if you're listening to this and you hear that we're <laughs> bashing your movie. <laughs> You scarred the 10-year-old girl in the audience. I'm sure they've moved on. It's been a few years since that doc came out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, thanks, Lily. No problem. Time for the bucket list. Hey, Lily, I found something to add to the family's bucket list. It's called Sail Superior Great Lakes Adventure. It's happening down at the west end of Lake Superior near Thunder Bay. And it's all about getting out on Lake Superior and boats <laughs> and sailboats and the fabled sleeping giant. Oh, yeah. That lovely giant. <laughs> According to the Sail Superior website, experience the crystal clear waters and magnificent vistas of the world's largest freshwater lake. 
Nice. Embark on a day adventure sailing trip out past the Welcome Islands to the Sleeping Giant. The Sleeping Giant. There you go. We drove on that. We did. We we were there. We didn't know we were there. We were looking for it. We were standing on its head. Yeah, that was fun, wasn't it? <laughs> oh, my God. We broke the trailer. We broke the trailer. <laughs> <laughs> but we were there. We didn't know it, but we were there. We were on the Sleeping Giant. Mm -hmm. It's huge. It's huge. I know. We kept looking out the lake. Like, where is it? We can't see it. We could see Thunder Bay. We, were, we should have been in Thunder Bay looking out at the sleeping giant. Yeah, it was bad. <laughs> um, the website also says you can take the one hour, 30 minute Thunder Bay Harbor tours by sailboat. Nice. See the massive grain elevators up close, the break wall and Thunder Bay main lighthouse. Cool. Circle anchored ships out in the bay. Enjoy a spectacular view of the cityscape, the bay, and Lake Superior. Hey, I was in Thunder Bay not so long ago. They were featuring my documentary, What Lies Below, as part of their film festival. Shameless self-promo. But you know what? It was good times. Got to know some people. Got to know some Thunder Bay people and had a great time. Saw some great movies. Had some great food. And that's where I took that picture of the sleeping giant from my hotel bedroom window. Nice. <laughs> so you actually got to see it. Yeah, yeah, well, at least once in my life. We're going back. We're going back, I promise. This one sounds uh, really cool. The Welcome Island Blast by Zodiac. That sounds fun. Mm -hmm. A 30-minute exciting ride around the Welcome Islands on the Superior Rocket. It has 500 horsepower. The Superior Rocket can reach speeds of 80 kilometers an hour in open waters. Tight turns, winds, and waves make for an unforgettable thrill ride. I'm in. Me too. <laughs> That's cool. Okay, there's another one. Yeah? Uh, they even offer an island escape for artists. It says, whether you're a writer, artist, photographer, or yogi, we have the retreat for you. The summer is the perfect time for self-improvement and self-care. There's no better way to put the balance back into your life than with a retreat on a secluded island where you can relax surrounded by the beauty of nature. Your creativity will flow. Your craft will grow. I'm going fishing. You could craft. I'm going fishing. Oh, yeah. Because, you know, fishermen are now considered artists. It's the art of angling. It goes way back. That's the first book ever written about fishing. It was called The Art of Angling. Take an adventure over the waters of Lake Superior aboard the Superior Rocket to the spectacular Porphyry Island. Oh. Yeah. Oh. It's the best of both worlds. A getaway to a secluded island and a ride about the rocket pontoon boat. <laughs> no, that sounds nice. It sounds nice. Yeah, like it'd, be, it. it'd be nice to see the giant, Yeah, even if I was there. Yeah, I know. I owe you a giant. Mm. Thanks, Lily. I wanted to give some information about Lake Superior. I think it's worth knowing a few things about the lake. Some good things and some bad things that are happening as well. First of all, it's the largest lake of all the Great Lakes. I think most of us know that. But it's also the largest lake in the world in terms of its surface area. If you measure from north to south and east to west, and yet calculate all those square kilometers, there's no other freshwater lake in the world that covers as much of the earth as Lake Superior. In terms of how much water it contains, how about 3,000 square kilometers? Square kilometers, folks. That's one kilometer by one kilometer by one kilometer. 3,000 of those. That's enough to fill all the other Great Lakes plus Lake Erie twice over. Now on the bad side, According to new information released by the International Joint Commission, this is the uh, U.S.-Canadian body that has over 200 scientists working on it, and they study all the waters that we share with the United States. And they said 
Lake Superior is the lake that's changing the fastest in the world due to climate change. I recently spoke with one of these scientists. We've got Dr. Jay Austin talking Lake Superior. Thanks for having me on, Lawrence. I asked Dr. Austin if it's true if Lake Superior is changing, and what does that mean? So we are seeing a long-term trend um, towards uh, warmer conditions in the summer, towards less ice in the winter. Those two things tend to be related. Um, and it's not a, you know, it's not a year-on-year sort of thing. So there's still an enormous amount of variability from year to year. That variability is always going to swamp the more gentle uh, climate signal. But if you look at 30 or 40 years of data, uh, which is what we're starting to work with, um, or starting to have available to work with, uh, there is a trend towards um, uh, towards warmer temperatures to the extent of over the last 40 years, maybe summer water temperatures on average are two Celsius warmer. So, so yeah, it's it's um, one of the faster warming lakes uh, on the globe. A lot of people say, well, you know, weather changes. There's cycles. There's natural cycles. And I asked Dr. Austin about this, and this is what he had to say still an enormous amount of variability from year to year. The point is that we're going to be seeing fewer years like 2014 or 2009, which was another high ice year, and we're going to see more and more years like 2012 or I think 2017 was another low ice year. Uh, we're going to just experience more and more of those years. Ice isn't going to go away, uh, but we're just going to see it less frequently. The scientific results that they found that Lake Superior is the fastest changing lake in the world of all freshwater lakes due to climate change had me thinking about greenhouse gases. And that's why Lily and I talked about that, because we need to get climate change under control. We need to mitigate climate change. We need to reverse it. We need to stop it. We need to stop the impacts of climate change. In the meantime, we also need to be resilient. We need to recover. And that means finding other ways to create energy, like wind power. And I had a conversation with Dave Brown on Now with Dave Brown about the importance of coastal wind power. So, Lawrence, uh, can you explain to us what constitutes an offshore wind farm and how they might differ from a typical wind farm that we'd see on land? Well, they're more expensive to build than the ones on land, but otherwise the technology is the same, right? We're talking a, a big windmill pushing a generator, creating electricity, and then that electricity has to be gathered together and then somehow put into the grid without overpowering the grid. That's the challenge. you got to create it in one place and then distribute it somehow. Mm. Um, the other big difference is that, you know, they, they're further away from houses, right? So that's, that's the big benefit. You could put these on the water. They're further away from houses. And there's a lot of wind on lakes. Generally, way more wind on a lake than there is on land. Where did the study pull their data from? What jurisdiction? This, this was done in the UK, uh, five European countries. So it was the UK, Belgium, Germany, uh, and the Netherlands was, a, a, of course, the iconic windmill country, right? I mean, you know, the Dutch and their windmills. So they looked there and they, they had all of these five countries have uh, offshore windmill generation happening now. And they found out that the cost of creating electricity using these offshore windmills is far cheaper than using coal or even natural gas. So what, what are the factors that are contributing to that? Why is the cost going down? You know, the technology is getting better, right? We're getting better at manufacturing these windmills. We're getting smarter at uh, hooking them into the grid. The grid itself, I mean, you know, to create a grid where you have one big source, like a nuclear power plant, 
and then you spread it out over smaller and smaller transformers and lines and it eventually comes to your house on a small wire that's that's what we used to have now we've created these new grids that allow electricity to be created and shared and moved in two directions so it, you can have your house and, and uh, solar power on the roof of your house, and if you're not using that power, that power can go back into the grid. So now these grids are two ways. Once we've established that infrastructure, it's made the uh, possibility for creating electricity in all sorts of different, diverse, spread out locations much more affordable. Lawrence, you mentioned hydroelectricity, which we know is one of the biggest forms of power generation in eastern Canada. And certainly we know we've got a strong fossil fuel uh, economy, or at least we have a fossil fuel economy uh, based on uh, recent news in western Canada. I- I'm curious, yeah. what, what does this development or these lowering costs mean for the current ways in which we generate power? Well, Ontario still has some atomic uh, nuclear power oh, right. plants. Yes, of course. Yeah, yeah, like Bruce and Pickering. And, you know, the cost of refitting those things is in the multiple billions of dollars, right? So do we put that money into rebuilding those and keeping them running for another 10, 15 years? Or do we invest it some, in some other way? Then there's the, uh, like you said, there's the natural gas plants uh, that we have. We've we, Ontario's got rid of most of their coal generation. But there still is some of that across Canada, and that's not great for the CO2. So, you know, the cost you have to measure in terms of climate change impacts as well and the benefits of wind power. And then, uh, you know, they figure there's probably a thousand hydroelectric dams around the world that should come down that have reached the end of their life that are no longer producing much electricity because of uh, you know sedimentation backing up behind the dam and the water levels going down and just the age of these dams mm. that's a thousand dams that could come down and reopen that whole uh, the watersheds back up to nature again right so you're dealing with uh, you know connectivity of the watersheds and that's that's a great thing for nature as well so coming back to this offshore or uh, or, or waterfront uh, wind generation power, how is Canada doing so far in regards to uh, taking advantage of this resource? Obviously, we've got a lot of coastline and a lot of lakes where this could come into play. We really do. I mean, the longest coastline of any country in the world with the three oceans, you know, the Great Lakes themselves make up, uh, you know, the largest uh, assortment of freshwater surface in the world, you know, in terms of surface area, I think it's like 20, uh, 21,000 square kilometers or I, I, Dave, never mind that number, but it, it's the biggest. I mean, the Great Lakes is the biggest fresh surface freshwater area in the world. So yeah, we've got a lot of space for windmills, but you know, I looked looking on the website, I find there was two windmill projects for Eastern Ontario, Lake Ontario that were planned by uh, two private companies. They were both uh, put on hold by the the Ontario government, and uh, they had to pay $28 million to one company. There's a $500 million court case launched by the other company against the government for, for stopping their project. Yikes. And, uh, and then there's 31 projects, uh, shore windmill projects around Canada that are in play, but none of them are connected to the grid none of them are licensed none of them are sort of operational so where do where do we stand with all this big fat zero right okay (laughs) we talk about wind power we talk about the possibility of creating wind power electricity on lake superior but it's also great for sailing like lily was saying there's tourism operations doing just that it's a huge lake you know and the biggest city on lake superior is duluth on the american side lake 
it's Thunder Bay on the Canadian side, and then there's a whole lot of just beautiful, rugged coastline, tucked away little beaches here and there, beautiful fishing and sailing. So here's some tips on how to sail blind. Outdoor tips and tech. Six degrees on your left, 122 meters. Blind sailing may not be a Paralympic sport, but it is an international sport. There is the International Blind Sailing Association and there's the Canadian Blind Sailing Association as well out of Toronto that has some amazing boats located right at the foot of Toronto, right near the CN Tower, beautiful yacht club, wonderful team of blind sailors there, fully equipped, a really great organization to join in. You know, but you can sail anywhere. All you need is water and a sailboat. And maybe someone to show you the ropes a little bit, right? I learned to sail at the CNIB Lake Joseph Center on their little Hobie cats, these tiny little catamarans with tiny sails, perfect for one or two people. Love to get out on that. And then I graduated to the windsurfers, where you're standing on a surfboard, holding the sail, holding the mast, trying to stay up. The tricky part of that is that first 10 feet, once you're moving and once you get going, staying on a windsurfer is not a big deal. It's so much fun. So here's how it works. If you want to sail blind and race, there's uh, two ways of doing this. One is the rules that they're using now based on the International Blind Sailing Association is you have two blind sailors in the back, you know, the usual B1, totally blind, B2, uh, mostly blind, and then B3, uh, re legally blind. So one of them's on the tiller and one of them is working the ropes and the mast and the main boom, so the main sail. And then you have two-sided people on the front of the boat. One can only talk. He can just say, go left, go right, or whatever she needs to tell the crew in the back to do. And the other-sided person at the front is working the jib, that small sail at the front of the sailboat and making sure it's pulled in the right direction. So you have a four-person crew and usually four or five boats sailing against each other at the same time. And it's a triangle pattern on the lake that you're sailing on. So they put out three buoys in a triangle shape. You start at one buoy, you have to pass around the outside of the other two buoys and then come back to the first buoy. First boat back wins. If you bump a boat, you have to do a 360 degree turn in the water before you can continue on. It's a lot of fun, a lot of excitement. You hear the other crews, you hear the wind in their sails. You wonder if they're coming, you're trying to catch up to them, you're trying to pass them. Well, you know what? I had a lot of fun doing that at the California International Blind Sailing Regatta. There was teams there from all over the world, Japan, the United States, California. Canada had some teams there and a guy from New Zealand and the International Blind Sailing Association president called me up and said, Lawrence, we got a guy from New Zealand. He wants to race. And I know you want to race. Why don't you come down and, and you guys can make an international team. So that's what we did. Me and this guy from New Zealand. We met, we shook hands, we practiced for a day or two, and then we raced for two days and we won. We, I was the first Canadian to ever win an international blind sailing regatta. It was a lot of fun, made a lot of new friends, and learned a lot about sailing. These boats have no technology. It's all about feeling the wind, the sun, the waves, listening to what's going on around you, as if you were sailing in the fog, you know, as if you were a maritimer sailing in the fog or at night. I mean, they had those same conditions that we have as blind sailors, and yet they did it. Sure, there was lots of shipwrecks and lots of boats sank, you know, it's not the waves and it's not the water that'll get you. It's the land when you bump into the land and you don't expect it. Now, they have another way of sailing 
and racing. Two boats, and they put beepers on the boats, and the beeper makes a certain sound when it's attacking the starboard, which is right, or port, which is left. And then you have a set of buoys that make noise. And then when you're sailing towards one buoy, it makes starts making noise, so you know where it is. And only two blind people on each boat, and one sighted person who says nothing. The only thing they're allowed to say is, turn, you're going to ram them. <laughs> then you have to turn. But the idea is that you hear where the other boat is that you're sailing against, you hear where the buoy is, and it's really up to the blind sailors themselves to get around those three buoys and not bang into the other boat and do it as fast as possible. It's a system out of Italy. Canada has one of these systems on Lake Ontario that they use. And at some point, who knows, maybe the International Blind Sailing Association will adopt this system and maybe we'll get to the Paralympics and we'll have blind sailing. Wouldn't that be cool? Now, I said they're not using technology and that's not 100% true. There's a lot of blind sailing clubs around the world that use technology and a lot of them have invested money and time to create this technology. I've been tracking it down for years, you know, putting it on my little blind fishing boat. And uh, there's a lot of cool things out there. GPS, compasses, you know, I've been downloading compasses onto my iPhone lately. I think I have four talking compasses. The iPhone itself has a talking compass. You want to be able to create a route on the water. So if you can have a compass that you can point in one direction and hit the go button, and then if you veer off that direction, you say you go a little left and it makes a certain sound, or if you go a little right, it makes a different sound. And if you're going straight on, it makes a, the perfect sound that you want to hear. So you know you're going in the direction you want to go. Now that's a compass and it's not going to save you from drifting left or right. You know, the compasses don't work that way, but GPS does. So there's some cool GPS technology that can help you with that as well. I still love to use the technology, but you can't be 100% dependent on technology if you're going sailing or doing anything. You really need to be able to know what you're doing and have a way of mitigating the risk. And if that means bringing a buddy along, that's probably not a bad idea. You think about sailing, you read stories about people that sail around the world and the races that take place around the world and those solo races, right? Where one person goes off on a sailboat and sails around the world without touching land and the first one to get back, you know, 15 people leave, five of them don't make it, some die, you know, and maybe a few do. But it's, it's tough, it's not easy to do. And I've met blind people that have tried to do it. There was a couple out of the United States that set off from the west coast of the United States they made it to Hawaii, changed sailboats, they made it to Australia, and that's as far as they made it. They, uh, they just decided to stop. Actually, uh, the one person fell in love with an Aussie, and that was what ended that trip. There was another individual, he set off from Boston, Massachusetts, and he was going to go east to Europe first. He had a beautiful sailboat, like a 35-foot sailboat, all tricked up with electronics and set off and lasted two days, got into a bit of a storm, realized that he was in over his head and came back. Then there was another guy. He asked if I would be interested in doing a round-the-world trip. He was assembling an all-blind crew. But you know what? You know what sinks sailboats these days? And it's not whales. It's not bumping into whales like Moby Dick. No, it's containers. They strap a lot of containers on top of freighters. They put them in the freighters, and then they strap a whole pile on top. And when those freighters get into huge storms, that strapping breaks, and those containers fall overboard and they just drift around like icebergs that's what kills more sailors and sinks more sailboats now than anything else in the world banging into containers 
you got to be able to see those things. They're underwater pretty much. You're not going to pick them up with radar. Ah, uh, I'll just take a pass on that sailing around the world. But you know what? Still nice to get out sailing. Lake Superior. Let's go see the sleeping giant. Follow me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, or visit me at lawrencegunther.com to keep up to date on my blogs and videos. Subscribe to get the latest episodes of Outdoors with Lawrence Gunther by visiting your favorite podcast provider. And please take some time to rank us and give us some comments on your podcast provider's site so other people will learn about our new show. Send me your feedback, suggestions, and questions on email at feedback at ami.ca or on Twitter at AMI-audio. I want to thank Nazreen Abdel-Majid, Sam Robinson, and Paula Deneen. They're my technicians. The manager of AMI-audio is Andy Frank. This was an AMI podcast. For more accessible media, visit AMI.ca.